Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Dr. Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Clippings Podcast, where we review the nail literature and present it to you. I'm your co-host, Dr. April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. Happy to be here. Nice to have you, Catherine. We are excited to explore two papers with you today. Our first article today comes from Dr. Sheng Yang Bertrand Lian and co-authors from the Department of Dermatology at Singapore General Hospital and the Duke National University of Singapore Graduate Medical School. It's a research letter published in the January 2021 issue of JAMA Dermatology entitled Spectrum of Nail Sequelae in Stevens-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis. I chose to review this article with you all today because SJSTEN is a severe life-threatening condition and it's important we all know more about it. The focus tends to be on the um, mucous membrane and specifically the ocular complications after the SJSTEN as well as some of the known skin findings. Um, But this was the first published article specifically examining the associated nail changes seen after SJSTEN. And to briefly review, SJS and TEN are uh, a spectrum of severe adverse drug reactions, and SJS, or Stevens-Johnson syndrome, is the nomenclature when it's less than 10% body surface area affected. It's called TEN, or toxic epidermal necrolysis, when it's more than 30% body surface area, and then the cases in the 10 to 30% range are called SJS-TEN overlap. I have personally seen patients with bow lines after SJS and more severe nail dystrophies, including anonychia after TEN. Previous reports have described nail changes ranging anywhere from 10 to 50% um, of patients after surviving an episode of SJS or TEN. So these authors performed a case series study at Singapore General Hospital They included 39 patients who were treated for SJS, SJS-TEN overlap, or TEN from 2014 to 2018. The patients were treated with supportive care and immunomodulatory therapies during the episode, though those were not specified. And then they were seen um, at follow-up six weeks after discharge. Of the 39 patients, 36% had SJS. 38% had SJS-TEN overlap, and 26% had TEN. Uh, Their culprit medications were 23% allopurinol, 15% antiepileptics, 15% omeprazole, and only 10% antibiotics, which was interesting um, because I think we, at least in the burn hospital, burn center where I trained, we saw more antibiotics. Um, The study population was 54% men, 46% women, and an average age of 50. At all these patients' um, six-week follow-up, 
Uh, 27 of 39 or 69% of the patients had chronic nail changes that had not been present during their acute illness. Uh, the likelihood of the nail findings increased with the severity of their illness and um, the nail changes were seen in 35% of the patients with SGS, 80% of the patients who had the overlap, and they were seen in 100% of the patients who had TEN. The most common nail changes were bow lines in 35%, onychomedesis in 28%, and a yellow distal dyschromia of the nail plate in 18% that we'll speak more about later. Uh, other less common findings included onycholysis, onychorexis, anonychia, erythronychia, onychoschisia, pterygium, coilonychia, and the oil drop sign. During the acute phase of illness, 10%, so 33, 10 patients, so 33%, had periungual bullae, and 80% of those developed permanent onychomedesis or anonychia afterwards. Um, so the authors showed that the nail complications after SJS TEN are as high as 70%, which was higher than previous estimates of 10 to 50%. And the difference may be due to the fact that this study had 26% of their patients had TEN, so it was a more severe cohort than some of the previous studies, and that definitely influences um, the associated nail findings. Um, the changes that they saw ranged from the mild bow lines to severe anonychia, and that seems to correlate well with the severity of the nail matrix damage from the SJSTEN. We can think about the bow lines representing partial arrest of the nail matrix, onychomedesis representing complete arrest. Um, erythronychia can be thought of as focal loss of matrix function. Um, and onychoschisia and onychorexis are due to defective nail plate production um, due to impaired intercellular adhesions from the nail matrix dysfunction. So the finding of the distal yellow dyschromia in 18% of the patients is a newly described finding, and the authors suspect that it's due to um, slowing of nail growth during the acute phase of the illness, analogous to what is seen in yellow nail syndrome. I assume that this grows out over time, but it's not known from the current study, which just described the patients at the six-week follow-up. So to summarize, the authors described the various nail findings after SJS, TEN, which were quite common. Um, the severity of the nail changes correlated with the severity of the disease, and in particular, the periungual bullae predicted significant nail changes. It's important to include the possibility of nail changes on the long list of things to discuss with patients who have SJS, TEN so that the patients can be aware and watch out for the nail changes and know to seek care for them when they do occur. I would love to see additional studies with longer-term follow-up as well so that we can counsel our patients as accurately as possible on the likelihood of the changes being temporary or permanent. Okay, that was an interesting article. Thanks, April. Um, well, I can't say I'm surprised that the systemic shock of SJS and TEN would cause nail changes. I have not 
thought much about them or counseled patients about that during uh, inpatient rounds. I am also interested to see how often these nail changes are permanent. We see these patients in the hospital on inpatient consults, but we don't see them for long-term follow-up quite as often. So as the authors mentioned, it's just another reason to have a high index of suspicion and intervene early with suspected cases of SJS and TEN. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll get All started. All right, I'll uh, hand it over to you. Okay, sounds good. Um, I chose the article, Prognostic Significance of Subungual Anatomic Acrolentigenous Melanoma by Drs. Mejbel et al., which was primarily completed at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. This article was e-published ahead of print December 2020 in Archives of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, which has an impact factor of 4.094. For some background, acral melanoma encompasses melanoma on the palms, soles, digits, as well as the nail unit, where it is caused called subungual melanoma. It accounts for less than 5% of cutaneous melanoma in white patients, but is the most common type of cutaneous melanoma in non-white patients. It is known that melanomas of the back, arms, neck, and scalp have a lower five-year overall survival rate than those at other anatomic sites, but the prognostic significance of subungual anatomic sites, specifically for acral lentiginous melanomas, has not been explored. The authors identified 627 patients with primary acral lentiginous melanoma treated at their institution from 1999 to 2014. 45 of these patients had acral lentiginous melanoma at a subungual location, and 592 had tumors at non-subungual sites. Patients with acral lentiginous melanoma of the digit with secondary involvement of the nail unit were excluded. The authors collected patient demographic information, and pathologists re-evaluated the H&E slides to record tumor parameters, including histologic type, Clark level, Breslow thickness, number of mitotic figures, and many other features. Regional lymph node metastasis was determined using the institutional protocol of sentinel lymph node exam for cutaneous melanoma, which is described in more detail in the article. Overall survival and disease-specific survival were measured from date of diagnosis to date of last known follow-up. This may seem intuitive, but to review, overall survival looks at the percentage of people who have not died from any cause at time of follow-up. Patients who have died from causes other than melanoma are excluded when calculating disease-specific survival. The subungual versus non-subungual groups did not significantly differ with respect to most of the baseline clinical and histopathologic characteristics, although the non-subungual group trended toward an older age at diagnosis with a mean of 62 years versus 57 years, and the subungual group was close to evenly distributed between the upper and lower extremities, while the non-subungual group had 87% of tumors on the lower extremities. I did look up some other articles on the distribution of acral melanoma, and this is consistent with findings in other studies as well, 
with the majority of cases of acral lentiginous melanoma found on skin of the lower extremities. For both groups, approximately 70% of patients were white, and males and females were nearly equally affected. The majority of tumors were diagnosed at a Clark level of four or five with Breslow thickness greater than one millimeter. So as you can see, we are catching these at a later stage. And approximately half of patients whose sentinel lymph nodes were tested had positive sentinel lymph nodes. The overall survival rates for the subungal group were 81% at one year, 40% at four years, and 28% at 10 years. This was significantly worse than the non-subungal group, which had overall survival rates of 94% at one year, 59% at five years, and 38% at 10 years. In a univariate analysis, patients in the subungal group had a higher risk of death than those with non-subungual acrolentigenous melanoma. However, no significant differences were found between the disease-specific survival of the two groups. And when stratifying the groups by upper and lower extremity location, there was no significant difference in either overall survival or disease-specific survival. Factors associated with a worse overall survival and disease-specific survival included male sex, Clark level 4 or 5, Breslow thickness greater than 1 millimeter, ulceration, lymphovascular invasion, mitosis, vertical growth phase, spindled cytology, lack of associated nevus, regional node metastasis, and higher number of positive nodal metastases. After adjusting for the significant clinicopathologic factors, Breslow thickness and sentinel lymph node positivity were the only independent prognostic factors for both overall survival and disease-specific survival. Some limitations of this study include that only 45 subungual acral antigenous melanomas were studied, and there is possible referral bias as MD Anderson is a tertiary cancer center. As the authors pointed out, while subungual acral antigenous melanomas showed lower overall survival rates, this difference can be attributed to advanced Breslow thickness and higher rates of ulceration in sentinel lymph node metastasis. Also, overall survival is more likely to be affected by factors such as general health and comorbidities when compared to disease-specific survival. Therefore, we can conclude that subungual site is not an independent prognostic factor for survival in acrolentigenous melanoma. Unfortunately, diagnosis of melanoma of the nail unit is often delayed, which leads to the misconception that it carries an inherently worse prognosis. This article highlights that if caught early, the prognosis is not independently worse than melanoma at other sites. This is why it is crucial that we do thorough nail exams during our skin checks and when in doubt, biopsy early. In our nail clinic, we get many referrals for longitudinal melanonychia and nail pigmentation, and we try to maintain the same threshold for biopsy as for pigmented lesions on the skin in order to avoid this delay in diagnosis. Yeah, I think it really highlights um, that there's so much importance to education of um, patients and um, dermatologists and other referring providers for um, 
what factors should make uh, longitudinal melaninicia a concern and emphasize the importance of um, a tendency to refer or um, biopsy rather than um, ignore. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Thank you so much, Catherine, for the discussion today. Um, I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, And to all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Uh, Let us know how we are doing and who you would like to have on the, um, which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristin.cnd at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, April. Thank you.